I would like to ask you as we begin the sermon today, do you know what you believe about the Bible and about Jesus Christ? Do you know what you believe about the Bible and about Jesus Christ? Is the Bible true? Is it historically accurate? Have you proven those things to yourself? Or do you just accept the Bible and just believe what you have heard? Did Jesus Christ really live? Did he really live? How do you know that he really lived? Was he born of a virgin? Did he die on the cross? Was he resurrected? Now, many of you believe that, but there are many people today that don't. And there are many people that have doubts about these things, partly because of some of the books that have been published in recent years and are continuing to come out in the weeks and months ahead. How confident are you about what you believe? How confident are you about what you believe? Do you know you believe the truth? Or do you have some questions and some doubts? Now, these are not just academic questions. We are living at a period of time when the fundamentals of Christianity are coming under fire, probably more so than at any other time in history. You might think, well, that's an incredible statement. I wonder about that. But you think about it for a minute. The persecutions that occurred in the early centuries of the church basically occurred in the Roman Empire under Nero, under Diocletian. Look at a world map and notice how much space the Roman Empire occupies on the face of the earth is not very big, just the northern lip of Africa, just part of Europe, didn't even involve North and South America, hardly anything of Asia, nothing in New Zealand, the North Island, the South Island, and not even in the Eastern Island, as the New Zealanders refer to Australia. The persecutions under the Romans basically was confined to the Roman Empire. The Inquisition that occurred in the Middle Ages, persecution of certain types of Christians, again occurred primarily in Europe, some in North, some in North America, South America, where the Spanish were. But again, large portions of the earth were just not affected by those things. Today, these books that are coming out, the Da Vinci Code and others, Put those things on the Internet, and that information, those questions and those doubts are beamed literally all around the world. The Da Vinci Code has sold over 45 million copies. There's probably multiple people reading each copy. When the movie comes out in another couple of weeks, it's going to impact the world. And it's planting doubts in people's minds. One of the characters in the Da Vinci Code says, you know, everything we have been told about Jesus Christ is a lie. 
This is what one of the characters says. Everything that we have been told about Jesus Christ is a lie. Another book that came out a number of years ago, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, suggested that Jesus survived the crucifixion, married Mary Magdalene, had a child, and may have moved to southern France. These are some of the ideas. Dr. Tabor's recent book, The Jesus Dynasty, he suggests Jesus was not divine. He said, children have biological mothers and fathers. So therefore, Jesus must have a biological father. And he may have been a Roman soldier. These are some of the things that are being published today. He died, according to Dr. Tabor. He was reburied by his his disciples. Thus, there was no resurrection. These are some of the ideas that are being beamed to people today. The Judas gospel that has come out basically suggests that Jesus told Judas to betray him. And Judas is the real hero because he did what he was told. These are incredible things, but these things are being spanned to the world. The Gospel of Mary, supposedly the Gospel written by Mary Magdalene, suggests that she was the real leader of the Twelve. And that she and Peter didn't get along with each other. She had secret knowledge that Peter didn't have. This is what is suggested in this particular gospel. The Gospel of Philip suggests that Joseph, excuse me, Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a romantic relationship. This is what is being beamed to the public today. And it fits with the Da Vinci Code statement that all that we have been told about Jesus is a lie. What they're really suggesting is what we've read from the scriptures is a lie. It's really guilt by association and dumping the Bible. As I mentioned, the movie version of the Da Vinci Code is going to be watched by people who may have never read the book, but they will get the message. They will get the message. As I said, we are living in a period of time when the fundamentals of the Christian religion are being undermined, being ridiculed. Doubt is being planted in minds of people all over the world. My question to you this afternoon is, what impact will these books and movies and ideas have on your faith? What impact will these ideas, these books, these movies have on your faith and what you believe? What I'd like to do in the sermon this afternoon is look for just a little bit at who these writers are that are writing these books. Where are they coming from? What is their motive? What are their assumptions? Why are they doing these things? I'd also like to compare what they say with the statements of the Bible and with some of the facts of history. And I think we'll see some very interesting things. I've entitled the sermon, Defending the Faith. Defending the Faith. You might ask, well, why are we covering such things like this in a sermon? 
Turn, if you would, to several scriptures. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was giving some instructions to his own disciples as he was sending them out on their mission to preach the gospel. That advice certainly applies to us today. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst wolves. And we are living today in an environment filled with wolves. They might not call themselves wolves. But the Bible talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Which is where some of these people are coming from. I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, be alert. Be knowledgeable. You you need to know your adversaries. You need to know your enemies. You need to know how they think and how they operate and where they're coming from. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Innocent. You watch a dove walking around. They're a very peaceful bird. They're a symbol of peace. And we should not be aggressively attacking other people. But we do need to explain what the truth is and make sure that we understand what the truth is and what is not true. But this was Jesus' advice. Be wise as serpents, alert, discerning, perceptive, and harmless as doves. In Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians five twenty one, you're familiar with the scripture there, I'm sure. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse twenty one. Paul says, Test all things, examine everything, look carefully at what it is that you believe. Test all things, prove all things, and hold fast to what is good. Don't hang on to things that aren't any good. In Jude, <clears throat> maybe let's look at one other scripture, Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul gives a series of uh, admonitions to Timothy, who was a leader in the early church. He says, verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive, not to argue about words of no profit. Don't get involved with things that are just not profitable, that will not lead to good results. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing, correctly understanding the word of truth. But shun or avoid profane and vain babblings, foolish ideas, silly concepts, stupid ideas is basically what he's saying. For they will increase to more ungodliness. And then he mentions certain names who are doing certain things. Verse 18, they have strayed concerning the truth. They've gone off track. They've lost it, basically. Down in verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, arguments, discussions, knowing that they generate strife. So he said, avoid these things. Don't get involved with them. Don't believe them is the bottom line. Finally, in Jude, verse 3, 
Again, a scripture that you should be familiar with, but we need to take these things to heart today. Jude in verse 3. Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. To earnestly contend, to fight for, to diligently defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I think we're going to have to, we will find we're going to have to fight for our beliefs, to stand firmly, to be able to deal with arguments and accusations. And that's what I would like to do in the sermon today. You know, Peter mentions in first, second Peter chapter three and verse three, he says, at the end of the age, scoffers will come, ridiculing people who believe the truth. You know, you're not believing Good history, if you believe the Bible. You know, you're, you're following fables. This stuff was made up. It's all political. This is the message of the Da Vinci Code. Now, these were political decisions. Some of the people in the early church excluded valuable information that they didn't include in the Bible. You know, that, that catches our ears today because we're all aware of what political spin is all about today. And when this is leveled at the early church, and this is where the Catholic church is vulnerable because they have spun things. Some of the accusations are on target. But then what happens is, since they supposedly got their teachings from the Bible, the Bible is also culpable. This is the guilt by association that is happening today in the minds of people. So what I'd like today is look at, like to do today in the sermon is look at some things that we can use to understand the issues and hopefully defend the faith more effectively. What I'd like to do first is ask some questions. Who are these people that are writing these books? Who are they? Where are they coming from? Where do they get their ideas? <clears throat> A number of these people are involved in what is called the quest for the historical Jesus. When I first heard those terms, I thought, wow, this must be really interesting because they're really searching for the historical Jesus. No, <laughs> it's a misnomer. They are looking for the Jesus that they can find in history apart from what is revealed in the Bible. In other words, you ignore what's in the Bible, then you look for whatever you can find in history that might describe Jesus. So they're not after truth in that sense. They're after what they can find if they ignore the Bible. This quest began in the early 1800s. This quest began in the early 1800s. It was promoted by German rationalist liberal theologians who didn't really believe the Bible. If you look up the Jesus Seminar, you look up uh, the historical Jesus movement, this is what you will find. Let me just mention several of the approaches that these people have used over about 200 years. Number one, they reject anything that smacks of being supernatural. If it's supernatural, they don't buy it which means the virgin birth, 
which means the resurrection, which means the miracles of Christ, they don't buy it. See, they're looking for historical things, things that agree with natural laws. And if it breaks a natural law, then uh, this is not of importance to them. So they reject the virgin birth. They would suggest that Jesus had to have a biological father because he was a biological little boy. The fact that he might have had a father in heaven being supernaturally conceived is something they just reject out of hand. And this has been done for 200 years. So people that are promoting those ideas today are following a school of thought that has been here for about 200 years. It's not new. It's been around. Another thing that they reject, they reject the historical reliability of the New Testament. Well, we can't trust them because they were just promoting their view of Christianity. So therefore, we can't trust the New Testament. We have got to look elsewhere. They were making political statements. They were just promoting their concept of a Messiah. So we've got to look elsewhere. So people involved with this movement of the historical the quest for historical Jesus reject anything supernatural. They reject the historical reliability of the New Testament in spite of the fact that archaeological discoveries, history, and other things support the New Testament. And the more things that they find, the more support that they find. There's a fellow by the name of Ramsey. I forget what his first name was. But I think he lived in the late 1800s. He began a study of the book of Acts, doubting the whole thing. He ended up concluding Luke is an incredible historian (laughs) because he gets so many small facts right that it blew him away. Now, this is what you find when you begin to explore And this whole idea of rejecting the New Testament as being historically unreliable is foolish. It's not good history. And yet some scholars say, well, I'm just following good history. No, it's not good history if you reject the New Testament, if you reject the Bible. These fellows wrote at a time when they understood what was happening. A third thing that the quest for the historical Jesus people do, they accept the Gnostic Gospels on equal footing with the Bible. They accept these Gnostic Gospels, which were found about 1945 or so, on equal footing. They accept these views that uh, Jesus and Mary had something going. (laughs) They accept that. Because this is historical. Hysterical might be another better word. (laughs) But they accept it as being historical. They accept the fact that Jesus conned Judas into betraying him. They accept these things as being a historical account. See, when you ignore the New Testament, then you start looking for other sources. What's interesting, Dr. Tabor mentions a Q source. Uh, of uh, the sayings of Jesus Christ. This is very interesting. Look up the Q source. See what you find. The Q source is supposedly a list of Jesus' sayings. 
is supposedly a list of Jesus' sayings. The problem is nobody's ever seen the Q source. There are no documents that support the Q source, and nobody has ever quoted the Q source. I came across an interesting quote. It's, it's, I thought it was even rather humorous. It says, scholars ask us to trade reliable gospel, the reliable gospel portrait of Jesus Christ for a hypothetical reconstruction of history based on a hypothetical reconstruction of a hypothetical document. <laughs> Nobody's ever seen it. No early church historian ever quoted from it, but they assume it must exist. Now, this is what you're basing your faith on if you buy into these ideas. Who are these people that are promoting these ideas? A little bit about Dan Brown. This comes from a book entitled The uh, uh, Secrets of the Code. Says Dan Brown has given us an incredible array of fascinating ideas and concepts. We get to partake in all this with no academic prerequisites. We don't have to know anything about the subject, <laughs> and we can just read the book. He says uh, <clears throat> we open the first page with the character staggering through the Louvre about 10.46 p.m., then we get swept away into Brown's fascinating scavenger hunt through the history of Western civilization. We never have to do any heavy mental lifting. (laughs) We don't have to think. We don't have to ask any questions. Is this true? Where did this guy get his information? Is there any evidence? He says we never have to do any mental heavy lifting. That if we don't want to. And it says it all happens within a 24-hour period. It says he may play faster and looser with facts than some would like. It goes on to mention where does he get his ideas. Dan Brown draws extensively on this body of occult, new age, and mysterious works. The problem is he's supposed to be writing fiction, When you read his accounts, it appears he believes a lot of things that he's writing. It appears to come from ideas, well, theologians promote these ideas. A certain school of theologians involved with the historical quest for Jesus is promoting these ideas. Another gentleman titled The Jesus Papers. His whole book is about Jesus' papers that he supposedly found. Uh, He was offered to to buy them, and then it didn't work out. He finally tracked a guy down, an antiquities agent in the Middle East, and he said, I'd like to see those papers. He said, well, you can't see them. And uh, then he finally said, well, I'll show them to you. So he took them to a vault, uh, opened the vault. There were some uh, things in a glass frame. He picked them up, but he couldn't read them. He says, but I actually held them in my hand, <laughs> even though he couldn't read them. <clears throat> this, is, <laughs> this is the type of evidence that we're dealing with. But the whole book is about the Jesus Papers, written by Michael Bajant. He's the co-author of the best-selling Holy Blood, Holy Grail. 
Let me just read you his qualifications. Michael Bajant was born in New Zealand. Nothing against New Zealanders. <laughs> he graduated from a Bachelor of Arts or with a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from Canterbury University in Christchurch and a Master of Arts degree in mysticism and religious experience from the University of Kent. So here's a person that's really into mysticism. He mentions that when Jesus fled to Egypt, he was actually going to Egypt to learn mystic uh, skills so that he could practice mysticism. And that he didn't really die. He just kind of uh, swooned or something and uh, didn't die. And then he, had, he went on and uh, was found to be alive elsewhere. Mr. Bajan's concept of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is a mystical, out-of-body experience. Now, that's where he's coming from. This is sad. You know, the kingdom of God is real. Christ is going to return and set, up, set it up on this earth. But he has it as a mystical experience. He said he's been to the pyramids, sat inside in the dark just to see what it was like to get this mystical experience. He's trying to read his mystical interpretation of the gospel and the Bible into things. <clears throat> In Dr. Tabor's book, The Jesus Dynasty, and another book by one of Dr. Tabor's peers, Bart Ehrman. Now, Dr. Tabor is the chairman of the religion department at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Bart Ehrman is the chairman of the religious department at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So these guys are colleagues. But they're both coming from the same direction. They accept the uh, <clears throat> Gnostic Gospels. They doubt that Jesus was divine. Uh, Dr. Tabor's comment was he had a biological father. Uh, he died. He wasn't resurrected. What they've done is bought into this concept that's been around for at least 200 years that reject the New Testament as being accurate. But they're willing to believe and put their trust in writings from the Gnostic Gospels. And these Gnostics were basically trying to undermine the message of Jesus Christ, that he wasn't divine, that he didn't die, or if he did, then he wasn't resurrected. This is where they're coming from. And these are some of the ideas, then, that are permeating the books that are being written today and part of what's behind the Bible code or the, uh, the Da Vinci Code. But I think it helps to understand where these people are coming from. If you turn to, uh, <clears throat> let me see if I can find this quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul is urging the church of Thessalonica to do certain things. He says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You can look at this in several other translations. We urge you to recognize, to respect, to be familiar with, to understand those who labor among you. 
I think this is one of the reasons Paul gave his own track record. He said, look, I was this and I was that and I was here and I was there and this is who I am. We need to understand where people are coming from. What is their track record? What are they promoting? Why are they promoting certain things? And remember Paul's admonition. He said, don't buy into silly ideas. Godless ideas that will take you off in a totally wrong direction. You know, people may be fascinated by Jesus as a historical character. But if you ignore what the Bible reveals about him and about his message, then you're buying into something else. Not a biblical message. You're buying into something that's very wrong, very different. So we need to understand where some of these people are coming from because we're going to be running into people that will be coming into church, new people. Well, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And I think if we understand a little bit about some of the ideas that they're bringing, we'll be able to help them out with questions. Well, have you ever looked into this? Have you ever examined that? As opposed to, oh, that's heretical. (laughs) Yeah, but why is it heretical? (laughs) We've got to be able to explain some of these things. Let's look next at uh, what the Bible actually says compared to what some of these books are, are trying to promote today. You know, was Jesus actually born? Did he exist? Or was he created by the disciples? I remember talking with, uh, I think the first visit that my parents actually had from a minister with the Church of God, my dad had read a bunch of philosophy, and I think my brother had actually set up the visit partly for my benefit because I didn't know anything about the church at that time. And I listened to my dad banter back and forth with the minister that came, and my dad said, well, you know, I understand there's no evidence outside the Bible that Jesus Christ even ever lived. And the minister kind of fumbled because he didn't know the answer. But it was something I began to look for answers beyond that. And there are uh, examples, historical evidence that Jesus Christ did exist. Tacitus was a Roman historian, lived in the first century. Wrote a book called The Annals. In fact, there's only a couple of copies of this thing left that were actually original copies. Let me just read a little bit about Tacitus' account of Jesus Christ. And this gets back to proving, you know, did Christ exist? Was he the Messiah? Did he die? Here's Tacitus' account. Now, Tacitus was not a Christian, didn't believe in Christ. The first century Roman Tacitus is considered one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world. He gives the account of the great fire in Rome for which some blamed Nero, the emperor Nero. Now, quoting Tacitus, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. So Christians did exist in the first century. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. He was killed during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So that's biblical. That fits with the biblical account. And here's a Roman describing it. Now, this is the history that some of these people don't talk about. They'd rather talk about the Gnostic Gospels that suggested the 
you know, he didn't die. But here was Tacitus' account. After the, uh, the death, it says, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for a moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, that mischievous superstition was probably that he was resurrected from the dead. And this is what caused the church to grow so incredibly. So Tacitus makes that comment. Josephus, who was a Jew that lived again in the first century, he became a historian, worked under the auspices of the Emperor Vespasian, says in his Antiquities, the book entitled The Antiquities of the Jews, dates from the early 90s, contains two passages of interest. The first refers to James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Those are Josephus' words. talks about Jesus, excuse me, James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. So he's referring to James. He's referring to uh, Jesus, who was called Christ. Now here's a Jew talking about Jesus. This confirms the New Testament facts that there was a man named Jesus who was known as Christ and had a brother named James, exactly what the New Testament says. The second reference is much more explicit and controversial. Now, quoting Josephus, Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. He realized he was referred to as a divine individual by some. For he was one who brought surprising feats. He did miracles. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day. This is Josephus writing. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wondrous things concerning him. Now back to the description from the book here. It says the genuineness of this passage has been questioned by scholars from all areas of belief. But despite these concerns, there are reasons in favor of accepting most of the text as genuine. First, there's a good textual evidence for the mention of Jesus and no textual evidence against it. In other words, it's solid stuff. Second, the text is written in the style of Josephus. And when you read the Gnostic Gospels, they've got a very different flavor than the Gospels in the Bible. They come up with fantastic stories. You know, Jesus was a little kid who was not supposed to be doing stuff on the Sabbath. He made some model birds out of clay, and his parents kind of scolded him. He <laughs> clapped his hands, and the clay birds flew away. I mean, it's, it's stories like this that you find in the apocryphal Gospels. You know, this stuff is, is, is fairy tales. But there's a very different flavor to what you read in the Gnostic Gospels than what you read in the Bible. Third, some of the words are most, most likely did not come from a Christian. Fourth, the passage fits the context both grammatically and historically. Um, so basically what he's saying is that Josephus and Tacitus appear to give us very accurate accounts that Jesus Christ did live, he did die, and he was resurrected in spite of the fact what some of the people are trying to say today. Let's notice a couple of things. The titles, for example, that Jesus Christ used for himself. If you look, first of all, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. 
fact, I think one of the authors of one of these books makes the statement, Jesus never claimed to be divine. He never claimed to be divine, okay? <laughs> That's his opinion. But what does the book say? And this, this is what gets interesting. You look at what the Bible reveals, and then you look at what people are saying. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. God was revealing himself to Moses. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, this was his name. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. So we can establish that. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 42, in verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am the Lord, this is my name. My glory I will not give to another. You might write in your margin here, John chapter 17, verse 5. Where Jesus asked in a prayer, he says, God, please restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And yet this verse says, my glory I will not give to another. I mean, you put those two verses together, Isaiah says that God is saying, I will not give my glory to another. And then Jesus said, restore to me the glory that I had with you. What Jesus was saying is he was divine. That's the very clear claim that he's making. But we're back to the I am. If we go to uh, Isaiah 44. <clears throat> verse 6. Thus says the Lord, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So what we find in the Old Testament, this, this, this name, I am, and the first and the last are equated with a divine being, with God. Now, if we jump to the New Testament in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> Jesus says, let's look at first verse 1, chapter 1 first. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant. So this revelation comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one speaking. Then in verse 8, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Back in Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, I am the first and I'm the last. So the Jesus that inspired the book of Revelation is using a term to convey the concept that he was divine. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 22. Verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So here you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. These terms, I am, the first and the last, these are divine terms. And Jesus applied those things to himself. 
In John 8, verse 58, notice what is said here and notice what the reaction was. John chapter 8 and verse 58. Start in verse 57 probably. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have, and you basically claim to have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, before Abraham existed, I existed. Now notice their reaction. They knew what he was saying. They knew he was saying he was divine. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. They knew what he was saying. They knew he was claiming to be divine. To them, that was blasphemy. And they reacted accordingly. So when somebody says, uh, you know, Jesus never claimed to be divine, they don't know the scriptures. They're not quoting the scriptures properly. Uh, John 10.31, I think, says pretty much the same thing. Jesus again was in uh, Jerusalem. Start in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now the father was divine. If you're one with the father, you will be divine. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from my father, for which of those works... Do you stone me? And the Jews answered and said, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's why they stoned him or tried to, because he claimed to be divine. Now, for somebody writing a book just because it happens to be in print and says, Well, Jesus never claimed to be divine, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Or they're trying to promote an idea that is wrong. But then if you don't believe the New Testament, <laughs> it doesn't matter. They can say whatever they want to say. But Jesus did claim to be divine. He also claimed to be equal with God. Turn to Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2 <clears throat> And verse 5, they brought a person to Christ to have him healed. And verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven to you. Now this (laughs) elicited a reaction. But some of the scribes, and these were the guys that copied the scriptures, they knew what the scriptures said. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we were in Rome. (laughs) 
And we were told all our sins were forgiven because Christ had given the church permission to forgive sins. So we felt very good. (laughs) But here was a scribe who said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nobody can forgive sins but God. This man just claimed that our sins were forgiven. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. He says, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That is a divine prerogative. He says, I just want you to know. that the Son of Man has that prerogative. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately arose, took up his bed, went out of the presence of all of them, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Jesus was divine. He was able to forgive sins. He was able to heal. He was able to raise the dead. Those are divine prerogatives. Jesus was divine. Mark chapter 14, quickly. Verse 61. I don't know where these people are coming from when they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be divine. They don't have their nose in the book. They've got their nose someplace else. Mark chapter 14. Verse 61. Let's see, where can we break in here? Jesus was facing the Sanhedrin. Let's start in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Lords, are you the Christ, the one that was prophesied to come, the Son of God? Jesus said, I don't know. (laughs) They tell me. No, he said, I am. He said, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, and I am the Son of God. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. What further need do we need for witnesses? Look, he just admitted it. He just admitted it. Jesus was divine. He took divine prerogatives. And these are the things that are being put down today. When someone looks at me and smiles and says, I don't think he was divine. You have to wonder, where are you coming from? But when you understand where these people who have gotten into the thinking of this quest for the historical Jesus are coming from, they reject the historical accuracy of the New Testament. They reject anything that's supernatural. They reject the virgin birth. They reject the resurrection. This is where they're coming from. And these ideas have been around for some time. 
As one book says, they represent the radical fringe of theology today. But I think that's becoming more and more mainstream. It was radical at one time. But as these things get uh, conveyed to the world, you read a little bit about the Jesus Seminar. These were liberal theologians sat around and put glass beads in a jar. You know, one color is you think Jesus said the words. Another color, well, he might have said it. No, he didn't say it at all. I think they've concluded that Jesus said about 3% of what's recorded in the New Testament. 3%. One source mentioned that a number of people on this Jesus seminar are liberal Catholic theologians. Now, they wouldn't mind the Bible not being totally accurate because then that would mean the church has got to be trusted. So it wouldn't hurt them to have the Bible have a lot of questions in it. It would just make the church that much more powerful because the Catholic Church does teach that uh, the doctrines of the church are based on the scripture and tradition. And this was the basis of the rupture between the uh, Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation because the Protestant Reformation did not buy this idea that doctrine was based on tradition. <clears throat> Did Jesus really die? I think we read this, the historical accounts from Tacitus indicating that he did. In Matthew 27, verse 35, the New Testament indicates that Christ died. Matthew 27, verse 35. And you could look up for scriptures in the other Gospels that talk about the same thing. <clears throat> Verse 35 says, They crucified him, divided his garments, cast lots for it, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken in the Scriptures. And it quotes Psalm, verse 22 and verse 18. Let's turn back there quickly. Matthew quotes a lot from the Old Testament just to show that Christ was the one that was prophesied to come that would fulfill these Scriptures. Psalm 22 and verse 18. Again, these are things that you need to prove for yourself. Does the Bible say it? Is there historical evidence to back it up? And then you have to ask, do I believe it? Or would I believe somebody else's ideas? You know, you can believe a hypothesis based on a hypothesis based on a hypothesis. <laughs> or you can base or you can believe what the Bible says based on the evidence that you can find. Psalm 22, verse 18, here's the scripture that was quoted. Let's start in verse 16. It's just a prophecy of Christ coming. For dogs will have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's what happens in a crucifixion. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. If you were whipped as Christ was, you would probably see bone. Exposed through cuts that went to the bone. <clears throat> I almost get into a description here of one of the boys when they were little, but I won't do that. <clears throat> one of the boys was getting out of the bathtub and slipped and fell and cut his tongue. So I'm patching up his tongue and I said, put your head back. He put his head back and there was a split in the skin right to the bone. But you see these things. Christ said, my bones stare at me. 
They divide my garments and my clothing they cast lots. So here was the prophecy hundreds of years earlier that uh, Matthew quotes back here in Matthew 27, verse 35. Christ did die on a cross. He was crucified. His side was pierced. When you read some of these uh, Gnostic gospel accounts, they say that, well, he, he really didn't die. Uh, he appeared to be dead. And then they put him in a grave, and then uh, some of his disciples came later and got him out. Well, how do you get people to believe in a dead person unless he was resurrected? The resurrection would convince people. Somebody walks into this building that we all have a funeral for a week or so ago. He walks in here. I mean, that would, that would shake everybody up. Somebody would probably call one of the news networks. They would be here with news film and so on. I mean, this would go all around the world. This went all over Jerusalem when Christ was resurrected and when other people came out of the grave and were walking around. This was one of the reasons why the church grew so incredibly. A couple of thousand here, a couple of thousand there, just a couple of days later. That doesn't happen from made-up stories. It happens from reality. You look at the disciples. You know, when Christ was first died, they went off and kind of hid, and they were worried about what was going to happen. (coughs) Fifty days later, let's look at there in Acts chapter 2. These guys were totally different people in Acts chapter 2. God poured out his Holy Spirit. Peter stands up basically in the temple and says, you guys killed the Messiah. Notice here. Uh, Where can we break in? Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, but Peter standing up in the midst of the eleven raised his voice to them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known and heed my words. These guys aren't drunk. I'm talking about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified, and you put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This was a very different Peter than the one who denied even knowing Christ three times. Totally different person. Now, you will be totally different if God gives you his spirit and you see the person who was put into the grave walking around and talking to you. Acts chapter 1. Now, Luke has been attested by other historians to be a very accurate historian. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given him commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen 
to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this wasn't done in a corner. People saw these things. These were eyewitnesses talking about the scriptures. And some of these people involved in the pursuit of the historical Jesus don't buy this. Well, we can't trust this. This might be propaganda. What on earth are the the Gnostic Gospels? But propaganda to undermine the Bible. Now, it depends on which you choose to believe. That was why I asked the question in the beginning. What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Did he die? Was he resurrected? Was he the son of God? Did he claim to be divine? Or is all this propaganda? Who is writing propaganda? (laughs) The apostles or the Gnostic writers? Who is writing propaganda today? People involved in the historical quest for Jesus who are basing their ideas on a hypothesis based on a hypothesis based on a hypothesis on a Q source that's never been seen and never been quoted. I mean, we need to ask questions. You know, the comment about Dan Brown about you can read the book without doing any mental heavy lifting, (laughs) without asking any hard questions. We need to ask hard questions. What does the Bible say? What does history reveal? It's interesting when you read the Koran a little bit. The Koran makes statements that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that his body was stolen. That was written about six or 700 A.D. Some of the early critics in the Gnostic areas were suggesting the same thing. If you go back to Matthew 28, the Bible says that. And it seems like some people take this and believe it as being true. Matthew 28, this was after the resurrection. The uh, women went out to the tomb. In verse 9, it says, As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Now this is one of the things that is overlooked by people that say, well, you know, Jesus uh, died and then his disciples came to get him or somebody stole the body. The Romans knew that Christ was expected to uh, be resurrected. That was why they posted a guard and why they sealed the tomb. That was why they did those things. Now, to assume that these guys just went to sleep (laughs) is stupid. If you were in charge of the Roman detachment that was assigned to the tomb, and you knew you were guarding a tomb that was expected to see a resurrection, you wouldn't go to sleep. Because if you did 
you would be, as what we would call today, court-martialed. In those days, you would have been strung up. You would have lost your life. Can you picture the commanding officer calling this guy in? What did you do? You let him get away. (laughs) Out of here. Kill him. They'd have to do that to make him an example. You You don't post a guard of a number of men. Some probably did go to sleep, but the others would stay awake. But chances are, I would guess, they probably all stayed awake during that period of time. They weren't going to risk their life. And for somebody to say, well, they, if somehow the disciples got in there <laughs> and got the body out of a sealed tomb with Roman soldiers standing around, come on. See, what are you going to believe? These hypotheses based on hypotheses based on hypotheses? Or things that speak with, to the facts. When they assembled, now this is the soldiers coming, With the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, basically to say, his disciples came at night and stole the body away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make uh, you secure. So they took the money, did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So if, you, if you're a historian and you come across a source that says this, ah, now I found the truth. They stole his body. And there was a book came out a number of years ago, what was it, the Passover plot, suggesting exactly the same thing. New information. Not new information. You're believing an old lie. It's incredible what's happening today. Another... <clears throat> One or two concepts, and we'll draw this to a conclusion. One of the books that is written is suggesting there were two different Christianities in the New Testament. Two different Christianities in the New Testament. One was a Jewish Christianity promoted by James and John and possibly Peter. And they disagreed with the Christianity being promoted by Paul. And that they just didn't get along with each other. They argued back and forth. Paul had this new theology about the kingdom of God being in heaven and you didn't need to keep the law and all these things, whereas James was holding on to these Jewish ideas and that he had really held on to what the truth was. You know, that doesn't seem to hold water. If you go to Galatians chapter 1, now you've got to realize you can't believe the Bible so... This doesn't count as information or evidence, but this is what's there. Paul talks about his background. He mentions he was taught by Jesus Christ. He went to Arabia, verse 17. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for about 15 days. It was up there about two weeks. And I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul went up to Jerusalem after three and a half years to talk with them, to say, look, am I on target? Am I preaching what I should be preaching? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Timothy with me, verse 1 of chapter 2. Down in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me, 
Now, what he's saying is they agreed with the mission that I had to preach the gospel basically to the Gentiles. They weren't arguing with him. It says, on the contrary, when they saw the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, the leaders, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You lousy jerk, you've got your own theology, get out of here. No. (laughs) They said, look, God is working through you to reach uh, the Gentiles. He's working through Peter to reach the Jews. There's no no, uh, arguments here. They weren't in different camps. They were working together. They gave us the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there wasn't anything between James and John and Peter against Paul. But this is being hypothesized by some today. If you go to Acts chapter 15, <clears throat> this is interesting, again, to ask some questions, to do a, bit, a little bit of mental heavy, heavy lifting here and ask, well, what about this? We have the issue of circumcision being raised, <clears throat> and it was a big issue. In verse 2, it says, Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute among them, and they decided to go up to Jerusalem to the elders, the apostles and the elders about the question. Peter stands up in verse 7, then when they had been, uh, there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, and then he talks about various things. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them to the Gentiles. So Peter talked about his experience with the Jews. Paul and Barnabas talked about their experience with the Gentiles. They're not arguing back and forth. They're just saying, look, here's how God worked with us. Here's how God worked with us. Verse 13, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God first uh, visited the Gentiles to take them, take out of them a people. So he explains that, then down to verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas and, and, and Silas and so on. So basically they were working together. There's, there's no animosity here between uh, James and John and Peter against Paul. It just isn't there. It's not found. If there was animosity, why then does Paul refer in 1 Corinthians 9, to Peter, without any animosity. First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> and Paul is talking about payment for the ministry. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? So he saw Jesus Christ had to be after the resurrection. Are you not my work in the Lord, talking to the church there at Corinth, if I'm not an apostle uh, to others, yet doubtlessly I am to you? Uh, 
Verse 5, have we not the right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Peter? So Paul is saying here, look, these guys are married. Uh, there's not, you don't find any animosity being mentioned here. Uh, so Paul is referring to them in a positive way, using them as an example. You know, if, if you had a different theology and you didn't like some guys, you wouldn't be referring to them as examples. But he's using them as examples here. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, <clears throat> this just doesn't match up with ideas that there's a, you know, a big thing going between Paul and the other apostles. starting in verse 14, probably, to pick up the thought. So Peter is writing, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Now, Peter would have been a hypocrite if he wasn't at peace with Paul. <laughs> He's like, now, you guys need to be at peace with each other. Now, don't, don't ask questions about me and Peter <laughs> or me and James. You know, come on. Be at peace without spot, without blameless, and account for the loving suffering and, that, and, and account that the loving suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, and also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things, in which some things hard to, un, are hard to understand which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction. You know, Peter wouldn't have been talking with, about Paul as a beloved brother if Paul was preaching a totally different gospel. It's also interesting when you look at Acts 15, the big issue there was circumcision. The big issue was circumcision. If Paul had a different gospel, that Jesus is divine, some said, well, you know, the book of James doesn't mention Christ was divine. The book of James is like a, a New Testament Proverbs book. If Paul was actually preaching a totally different gospel from James, they wouldn't have been talking about circumcision in Acts chapter 15. <laughs> They'd have been really going after Paul. What do you mean he's divine? You can't say that. Where is it in the scripture? They weren't arguing about that. They accepted that. Paul wasn't preaching a different gospel. They were dealing with the, the legacy of, of circumcision. That was what the issue was. So this idea that there was this big thing going between James and John and, and Peter against Paul just doesn't hold water. It doesn't fit. I think what is really sobering, if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, <clears throat> These books and movies are coming out today. Doubting or planting doubts in people's minds about the accuracy of the New Testament, the truth of the, the Bible. People are doubting. You know, did Jesus Christ really exist? Do we have a political book on our hands here? Are we missing valuable information? These doubts are being planted at the very time that the things that the Bible predicted that would take place at the end of the age are actually beginning to happen. Now, we've been talking about certain prophecies for 40, 50, 60 years. 
Germany is going to come back and lead Europe, Mr. Armstrong said. That's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. You know, we're seeing earthquakes, we're seeing famines, we're seeing droughts, we're seeing these things on a global scale today. The Bible said, watch these events. We can watch today what's happening all around the world by satellite television. Earthquakes happen and the whole world knows the next day. We're living in an age when these things are coming together. And we're also living in an age when these books are being published saying you can't trust the Bible. Jesus Christ wasn't divine. He wasn't born of a virgin. He wasn't resurrected. We can't know anything about him. That's nonsense. This is the tragedy. But in Matthew 24, notice what Christ said here in verse 3. Now as his disciples sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples, or Jesus said, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us what will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How will we know we're getting close to the end of the age? What was Christ's first admonition? Jesus answered and said, take heed that no one deceives you. Don't let anyone deceive you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they could be saying, I've always been fascinated by Jesus. I've always wondered what the real historical Jesus was like once you get rid of all this New Testament padding and, and political stuff. See, we can deceive ourselves. I've said over the years, if you've never deceived yourself, you've never really lived. If you've never deceived yourself, then you don't know what life is all about because you can deceive yourself. You can think you're very sincere in doing the right thing. You've got to back your mind into a corner. Is this right? Is this true? Is there evidence? Does this work? Is this real? But you can be following what you think is truth and be totally wrong. I think Mr. Armstrong had a phrase something like that. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. See, this is why it's important to prove all things and to hold fast to what is right and what is true. You know, Peter said at the end of the age, in the last days, scoffers will come. You're following bad history. You believe the New Testament. No, you're following bad history when you reject the New Testament. And you accept a hypothesis based on a hypothesis based on a hypothesis. I mean, it's hard to even say. When you believe in a document that nobody's ever seen and nobody's ever quoted and nobody's ever demonstrated even exists. These are the alternatives. Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you because many will come in my name and deceive many. As Jude mentioned, and we talked about in the very beginning of the sermon, that we need to earnestly contend 
for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Brethren, we have been given the truth of God. God opens your mind to understand the truth. We can't argue people into the truth, but I think people can be argued out of the truth, unfortunately. Let's hold on to the truth that God has given us. Let's be thankful for the understanding that God has given us. And let's pray that God will open the doors so that we can share this information with the world. And let's prepare to be able to counter some of the arguments and the ideas with well-pointed questions when the time arises.